to the movie guys. Paul Preston and Adam Witt here for another TMG interview. Uh, we are joined by film editor and frequent collaborator with the movie guys, Mike J. Nichols, uh, who's echoing the canyon, which he edited, is on Netflix right now. Uh, Mike's here to validate all of our questions for a special guest who is also an editor, an Oscar-winning one, who will... Well, I tell you the names of the most popular movies he's worked on, but they're right there in the title of his new book, which is available right now, wherever you get books. We're movie guys, so, I mean... Uh, well, I'm a book guy for this one. But I yeah. looked up where to get books. Yeah, Amazon, Target, Audible, and eBooks on Google Play Books and Apple Books. A long time ago, in a cutting room far, far away, my 50 years editing Hollywood hits, Star Wars, Carrie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Mission Impossible, and more is the book. Wow. And the author is Paul Hirsch. Hey! Thank you, thank you. Uh, and of course, in a career that goes that long, there will be many, many other big-time movies that he has edited, and uh, we'll talk about as many of them as we can today, but I want to start the way your book does. Yeah. Breaking down the role of the importance of a film's editor. I want to talk about the very first uh, paragraph, specifically in the book's introduction, which to me is a microcosm of the job of an editor. For those who may, who are listening may not know just how important the editor is, let's start with that. Please tell us the importance of the editor on a film. You see cinematographers, actors, etc. Uh, where do you see the editor's role and its importance in the big cog in the machine? Well, movies are made by turning a camera on actors or some kind of subject, and um, that film is very boring, usually, because... <laughs> It's repetitive, and uh, it may be incomplete, and exists existing in isolation doesn't have much meaning. But it's designed to be part of a constructed sequence, and that's the editor's job, to take the important bit out of each angle, the best take of each angle, and use it in conjunction with the other angles in order to tell a story. And so that is all <coughs> predetermined? Uh, it's your ch first choice, or it's often a collaboration with the director? Well, there's a script, and that's sort of the roadmap that the expedition is going to take. And uh, the director is the expedition's leader, and it's for him to say, okay, everyone, we're going that way. He looks at the map, and he says, okay, let's see where we are. Okay, we're going to go that way. And then um, you take his lead and, and go that way. Okay, we got everybody caught up. What an editor! In case you didn't know, well, he in, in the book you mentioned something about all the other parts of filmmaking, or something that was derived from something else. And editing is its initial. That this is where it starts. Yeah, it's not from theater. It's not from you. You don't have those things. Well, mm. if I'm if you know if you want me to get uh, scholarly about it, there was a Please. film theorist named Ricciotto Canudo, who wrote uh, about a hundred years ago when film was in its infancy. And he talked about uh, the lively arts, the six lively arts. And there were the um, arts that involved the um, that involved space and the arts that involved time. And the arts that involved the rhythms of uh, space were, in his view, painting, sculpture, and architecture. The rhythms of time for him were music, poetry, and dance. And he postulated that cinema was a seventh art. And uh, the, the art of cinema comprises many of the other previous arts. And 
cinematography itself has antecedents in photography, which has its own antecedents in painting. And there's costume design and, and set design, which relates to the theater or theatrical arts and dramatic arts and various elements of filmmaking were derived from pre-existing arts, but film editing is native to film. There hadn't been anything like it before of combining one image with another to tell a story by the juxtaposition of the two images. He considered editing to be a, an art native to film. Well, to that introduction to your book again, the story you tell is about Brian De Palma's obsession, which had an edgy plot, and studios were kind of afraid to release it. You went in and you changed one shot, and yeah. suddenly Columbia releases the movie. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That, to me, kind of sums up how important it can be. It can be. It can be. In the editing process. It can be. Um, the, thing, the story about obsession is tricky because uh, the film involves a surprise and you know, if you've never seen it, I don't want to give away the surprise. De Palma. He yeah. does that. Yeah. He's got his surprises, <laughs> you know. So, uh, you know, it's, you don't want to give spoilers, but uh, it's an interesting uh, exercise. I think I described it in the book, but I, I warned people that there were going to be that there were going to be spoilers. There are spoilers. I mean, Death Star blows up everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, basically, without getting into too much detail, we took an event that occurred and we made it into a dream sequence, so it really never occurred. So that was the trick. Instead of an establishing shot of this event, which I won't describe, uh, it became, we preceded it with a shot of our lead actor, Cliff Robertson, asleep. And we did a sort of a ripple dissolve, you know. And, uh, and then we showed the same film, basically, as we had had before, except by preceding it with a shot of him asleep, we're saying, this is not an actual event. This is a look into his mind and an understanding of what his obsession is and gives a deep dive into the character as opposed to just exposition about an, an event that occurred. And it all involved, all that involved was changing one shot. And because the event had not occurred, then the studios that refused to distribute the picture looked at it in a different way. Ah. And it was sold. Wow. It was sold. Just one small little move like this. So so and one thing like that can paint an entire movie, and that's, that's the power of editing. Take one thing out and put the other two images together, and you've got a different meaning. Which brings me to my most important lesson, which is context is everything. <coughs> yeah, you mentioned that a few Excuse times me. in the book. Yes. And, uh, so to get to the point where context is everything you collaborate with the director you collaborate with how do you collaborate with the the writers do they are they once they d deliver the script are they out does it depend on what kind of clout they have that they stick around the post process how does that how does that collaboration work well editors are usually the last people hired and all the discussions about the script have already taken place by the time i get onto a project and sometimes I will offer notes about the script that are uh, most of the time ignored because, I mean, I, I, you know, I worked with a young director uh, and I said, you know, I had these problems with the script. And he said, look, it's taken so long to get everybody on the same page and agree to shoot this. I don't want to raise these problems. 
at this point. So the collaboration with the writers is pretty minimal, really. Uh, the only times that I've gotten involved with the writers really has been when the script hasn't worked and we're in trouble at the end and we have to come up with something. We have to write a new scene or shoot a new scene, something to fix something that hadn't worked in the original script. That's about the extent of how much I work with the writers. How good does an editor make an actor? Well, our job is to make everyone look good. Mm -hmm. If we see a uh, um, bad makeup job, you try to cut around it. If you see uh, a bad extra, you know, you cut around him. If, if the lighting's no good in a particular take, you know, you try to see if you can use a different one. And, uh, if the act, you know, the actor's performance, you try to use the best moments. Um, as long as they're consistent psychologically from one angle to the next. And, um, you know, it's our job to make everyone look good. Yeah, he, he, he points out in the book about having that very intimate connection with an actor, almost protective of them, and they don't know you. You know, <laughs> like you have a very intimate yes. relationship with whoever you're working with. It's a one you could walk up to them like you're their best friend and yeah. they don't know you. Yeah, who are you, it's who a one, are you? It's a one-way relationship. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you you comment about Lupita saying at the Academy Awards something about thank you to her editors of the the movie for making her was that yes yeah. she did yeah very unusual very unusual wow. <laughs> for twelve years a slave yeah, right for the I, end. yeah. I can't remember anyone else ever saying I don't thank think you. so I was going to ask you that question I've seen people thank their their agent and their agent's assistant and the craft services guy and the costumers assistant and you know and never mention the editor. So that brings so. up a question we always struggle with when I have Mike on the show. What do you make of the phrase, below the line? Beneath contempt. <laughs> <laughs> I always said that if you put below the line on anything food-related, that means don't eat there. You know, like, <laughs> below the line sushi. I'm not eating <laughs> Below the line chicken nuggets. I'm not eating any of that stuff. Maybe I said there's such a contempt involved in that. For, I hate it. Yeah. I just hate it so well, much. It uh, does sort of relegate people to a lower status. You know, and it's unfair, considering how we've already spent 10 minutes talking about how important the editor yeah. is. Well, and then in the history of editors, too, back before it was even considered an art, it was just something that they, you know, they just had to be people to put these reels together, you know, and it was not even uh, considered a skilled job. It was like, here, we shot these five shots for the whatever, Edison, <laughs> what have you, and then you, you know, you, you put those four together, but then the idea that you would put one thing before the other or cut something short and that sort of thing, that, like, editing slowly became its own art form. Before that, it was just, like, sewing. I mean, that's a... They hired women to do it because they thought women were good with their hands for, you know... Like, it was like a, sewing. a, a like thing like sewing. Yeah, the first editors man. were women. <laughs> wow. So, what film of yours has had the fewest revisions? Huh. Um, Carrie was never changed. Well, that's not true. Let me think. I have to think about that. Let me see, 40 some odd films. Let me go through them one by one. The thing is, you're going into something like Carrie, you already know there's a tone to that, and, and you know Brian. Like that's the, I, I'm not surprised you would come out the other end of that with a fairly certain cut, just because that, that's a very certain movie. That movie knows what it is, and, 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 and you know. It's also a very simple movie, and yeah. it gives it its strength. You know, I think movies today tend to be too long and too complicated and um, Empire Strikes Back was locked one month after the end of shooting 
we never made any further changes. Wow. That, uh, I told this to Paul, that that movie has two of my, some of my all-time favorite sequences in it, in movies, because I don't think, I would ask you this, Star Wars, I never believed that they were making a kid's movie. Uh, and, and the work in it, I don't think, is kid's movie work. And Empire Strikes Back, when they bring Han Solo out, the whole freezing thing, the whole intercut with everyone as Chewbacca's fighting and, and the sound and everything, it's one of my all-time favorite sequences. And that's not something that's in a kid's film. And it's character. There's so much. that the, Some of the greatest looks in there. And then Yoda making the, uh, the X-Wing. How the, the shots are timed and they get mm. longer and longer between each thing. I said, that stuff is genius stuff. That That's not something that's in a kid's film. I, I, I do. I love that the work in that. Uh, oh, thank you. And it's got such a rhythm to it. You would think it was edited to John Williams' music. Yeah. But, I, but it's interesting that John would compose to your edit in that it's got such a rhythm to it, the, the X-Wing coming out of the swamp sequence. Yeah, you mentioned that film has a reverse plot hmm. as opposed to Star Wars kind of ending on a big battle. Empire begins with one. Hmm. Yeah, it was a courageous uh, move that I don't think people acknowledge terribly much. But you know, the standard response to Star Wars success would have been to make a copy of it and put it out, and you know, have a big battle at the end and same idea. But George had bigger things in mind. He was thinking of it as Act Two of a three-act story. And uh, he was even thinking of, you know, the the, the triple trilogy even then. So um, yeah, it was it was bold to not copy the success of the first film. And in fact, because it was the second act, it didn't make as much money as the first and third acts. I mean, not initially. You, uh, I know they were originally asked you to use a, a the Moviola. No, what, what was it? The device that you wanted to use a chem or Steenbeck. But when you do that, how, how did, did you just imagine music in your head when you would cut that stuff? Because you didn't have playback for some of that stuff. So Adam had just pointed out that you were timing things like music, but you didn't have music. Is that because you're a dancer? Is that... Is yeah, well, well I, you know, I majored in music at the high school, music and art in New York, and I was a timpanist. I was a percussionist. So, uh, and then I started out cutting trailers, you know, so cutting trailers is all rhythm. It's, Bing, bang, bing, bang, ding, da, 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 you know? And you're creating a rhythm with the cuts. And yeah, I would kind of sing to myself, you know? Cut, 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 You know, and you get the feeling of accelerating, creating a feeling of anticipation by accelerating the pace and then delivering some payoff at the end. It's a trick I use throughout my career. I notice. Yeah, I mean... And uh, you know, for audiences, for anybody who doesn't know in the audience, like the way the chem table or moviola worked was you would have your, your four reels on one side and your take up on the other that would turn to the, the edit, I guess, right? And you would, But there was a certain rhythm because you'd have to go from reel to reel. So there was this sort of like you would pull from this, cut, move it into it. Is that the... Um, well, I used to say that um, that film was brilliant because it turned time into something concrete. So a longer piece of film is a longer piece of time. And I thought, you know, there, were, there was a debate going on at that time between video editing and film editing. And I thought if video editing had been invented first, everyone would have been turning to film because it's nonlinear. You can cut, you know, I liken uh, video editing to putting hoops, you know, rings on a pole. 
And if you want to change, if you put a hundred rings on a pole and then you look at it all and you decide, well, you know, I want to put ring three where ring ten is and move them around. Then you have to take all the rings off the pole and put them back on again in the right order, which is a huge pain. Um, in film, it's like putting hangers on a pole. So if you want to rearrange them, it's very easy. Just yeah, take them out yeah, yeah. So that's the difference. And I always thought that film was much more um, friendly to the editor than videotape. Uh, when they invented digital editing, uh, it became very easy for me because it was an imaginary piece of film. And you would make imaginary splices in these imaginary pieces of film. And uh, the only thing that puzzled me was my whole life, film had been moving from with the tail on the right and the head, uh, tail on the left and the head yeah. on the right. And when they, <laughs> when they did it in in the computer, they put the head on the left and the tail on the right. And I thought, but now I understand, you know, so I've gotten used to it. But well, um, why I think you excel at that is because you were using the computer the same way you used film, except it was faster. Oh, yeah. And I think when it's like an, auto, it's an automatic splicing machine. Yeah. <laughs> when I, when I started working on it. I thought, oh, man, I can go really fast on this. I mean, this is I, w I was quick already. I mean, I was good with my hands and I could make splices and changes really quickly. But were you still doing the humming and the singing like you did before for timing? Uh, no, because you know I got good at it, so yeah. I didn't. You know I didn't need that sort of uh, internal trick. <laughs> but uh, you know it's and like anything else you do over and over, you get good at yeah. it. Let's go. Let's talk about one time when you were really good. Let's talk about Star Wars. <laughs> um, you won an Oscar for that, working alongside uh, Marsha Lucas and Richard Chu. Yes. And who, anybody else on the team? Or is it do I have everybody? Uh, well, there was a, an initial editor hired in England who was let go at the end of principal photography. Uh, George didn't like the cut. He was very unhappy with the cut, and uh, so he was let go. And he and Marcia came back from London through New York, where I was cutting Carrie with Brian De Palma. And we screened the picture for them, and they said, you know, it was, all, it was basically done, so they they thanked us, and they went off to San Francisco. And about two weeks later, I got a call from Marsha. She said, look, uh, Richard and I are not going to be able to meet the deadline just by ourselves. Are you able to come out and help us? <laughs> and I thought, this is, this is terrible, because my wife uh, was one month pregnant at the time. <laughs> and we weren't even telling anybody yet. So um, I said, I'll get back to you. And... Uh, Brian heard this. He said, what? And he called Marsha right back. He says, he'll do it. <laughs> Did he negotiate your rate, too, without even talking? He's yeah. like, pay him this much money. Yeah, he says, we're paying him this much. Can you pay him that much? Said, okay, it's done. So, so then I went home, and I said to Jane, I said, honey, this opportunity has come up. You remember that picture that we saw the, the production stills from? You know, they, they actually, George asked me to work on it, and she said, do it. Yeah, biggest movie of all time, and here's an example where you didn't see any of the shooting. You came in just to work on the post. Yeah. Well, a lot of pictures I was not near the shooting. I mean, um, De Palma would go off on location, and, uh, you know, he would send the film back. And when I started working with Herbert Ross, it was on a picture called Footloose, and they were shooting in Utah. And um, he said, you don't want to come on location, do you? I said, no. He said, fine. I said, do you want me to... Uh, have somebody sit with you when you watch dailies and take notes about takes you like? He said, no, that's okay. 
I have a very good memory, and uh, if I don't see it in the cut, I'll ask for it. Mm. So that was great, because he just turned me loose and let me use whatever I wanted. Yeah. And uh, that was a great uh, expression of confidence and gave me a lot of freedom, and uh, I was able to just cut it the way I saw it. How did the end result come out of that? Sim- very similar to... Well, he, he hired me in for another three pictures, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know, so I guess he was happy with I what just, I did. I was just wondering, because you, you commented something, and all of us have probably felt that before, when you put something together that you love, and then somebody makes a change to it that always feels like it's a knife in the side, you know, when you see the movie that you, they made a cut that you didn't want or something. Um, yeah. Well, you know, you get so close to it, and, I, you know, as I point out, all these pictures are handmade. Every one of them is handmade. So... Especially when it was film, you were putting together a uh, work print. It was you're not only making the film, you were making an artifact, which was the work print, the guide to the negative cutters, how to cut the original negative so it matched your cut. And you want to make the splices nice and clean, and to keep the work print clean. And uh, and it was used not only as a guide to the uh, uh, negative cutter, but it was also used for screenings. So um, there was a double aspect to our work. It was a, there was a craft as- aspect to it as well as an art. Uh, digital editing took that part away. But, you know, on film I could do maybe an average of 10 minutes a week. And with the computer I could do 15 minutes a week, 20 minutes a week. Sometimes it got even faster. You know, I could do even more. So the productivity increased. And uh, I just thought, wow, th- you know... I can go really fast with this thing. I I consider it, I consider my keyboard my splicer. You know, in fact, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. You uh, in the book you mentioned about the negative cutter cutting frame eighty nine versus ninety eight yeah. of the Death Star explosion. Yeah, that was a phone call I didn't want to get. <laughs> and I told Paul it was really <laughs> weird because I've always incorporated doing that trick, like because I liked it. And uh, I, even in the thing that I'm doing now, I have an explosion, and I've literally taken out 10 frames and made the double thing in it because I always was inspired by that. And then I read that and go, oh, it was a mess up. And I went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I call a, uh, a penicillin cut. You know, penicillin was discovered by accident. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you do something you didn't mean to do, and you go, oh, wait, wait. That, that oh, works. Penicillin. Yeah, I have, to hap- I have to imagine happy accidents are, are awesome and, and probably more often than you think, right? You put not two things all. together. Oh, really? Not that <laughs> but, but I, added, I guess I added a lot of events and things, and when I splice uh, together clips of an event to music, I find a lot of happy accidents. I don't, I'm not working with a script, so it's probably more for Because certain things match the beat, and you're like, oh, I meant to well, do that. Well, that slapped right in there. Yeah, mostly. right. I had no idea that was going to work. Yeah. Um, but one thing that Mike and I are always railing against in modern movies today is overwriting. Characters talking about what they're doing or recapping what just happened or saying a bunch of things that they wouldn't normally say if you were listening to two people talk. Yeah. Um, and so a good example from Star Wars in, in the editor's job of not just taking the scenes and putting them in order or moving them around, but lo- losing them entirely. You, you, you made the choice with your team to get rid of the Jabba sequence. Yeah. Good call. Because apparently he just recapped a bunch of stuff we already knew about Han's predicament. Yeah, and then George put it back. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, the special editions, should we, sh- should we get started on that? <laughs> shall we begin with the special editions? Uh, I, I don't want to go down any <laughs> fan rabbit holes, frankly. Yeah. 
Well, the the the, uh, the other significant one is is removing the big sequence in the uh, uh, Luke and his friends, yeah, which has shown up in a lot of special editions. And if you had the books as we did, the, yeah. those pictures were yeah, in there, pictures. which was always kind of interesting. But um, that has a. I feel like that choice to like take that out because we'll get to all that info later, or that will be revealed in some other way. There are so many movies I see that do that sequence up front that that you're like, that, clearly it's from a note. Like the audience was confused, so they just put a bunch of info at the top to let you go. But I, I love in Star Wars how that by taking that out, all the magical revelations of all those things comes later. Yeah, that was a good move. Yeah, <laughs> but also you described it as C-3PO and R2D to experience the world for the first time as the audience did. Otherwise, oh, yeah, yeah. we would have been living in that little world way before that even happened. Yeah, we. We had no idea the planet was even inhabited. Yeah, yeah that's the first such a sign great of, point. The first sign of life is the skeleton of this dinosaur yeah. lying in the sand, and you know, you know, it's. Uh, and then the next thing is the Jawas. So, by the time we, I think Luke and uh, his uncle are the first humans you see, and they have a perfect entrance because yeah. of how it's lit up. So it's a much more organic introduction to the character than an arbitrary cutaway to Luke in the middle of the of the opening battle, mm-hmm. which is what it was. And the, the whole film gets shot, but so much of it has to be put together in post because they relied on groundbreaking visual effects. And yeah. you visited the set, and you describe it well in your book. Can you tell us about going to see everything that it was John Dykstra, right, had put together for the movie? Yeah, so when I uh, was finishing Carrie, I came out to Los Angeles. I was still living in New York at the time. Came out to Los Angeles. I was staying at the Chateau Marmont, and uh, George sent me a copy of the script and it was called The Adventures of Luke Starkiller. <laughs> Star Wars, The Adventures of Luke Starkiller <laughs> and the Journal of the Wills. And, uh, you know, I read it and X-Wing, Y-Wing, TIE Fighter, uh, you know, J- Wookiee, Jawa, uh, you know. And I had no idea, you know, without... But I had seen a, a book of production stills. So I, t- I sort of took the script on faith. It, The script is really a blueprint uh, and is indecipherable as a blueprint. You know, you really have to examine it detail by detail. And it doesn't read like like other scripts that have less uh, intricate designs in terms of special effects and so forth. So anyway, George um, invited me to come see him out at ILM, which was in Van Nuys at the time. It was in a kind of a uh, warehouse, had a, a rolling metal door, I remember. And uh, I went inside and there was um, all these guys working on various aspects of the visual effects. And there was a model, it was a corner, it wasn't even a, a you know, they didn't have separate rooms or anything, it was just another, you know, part of the big space they were in. And they had uh, a pile of empty boxes of airplane model kits from you know World War II battleships and and planes and planes and uh, there's one now (laughs) there's one now we're playing sound effects like a morning show we're doing it (laughs) (laughs) and uh, they had taken little bits from all these model kits and put together uh, you know to build the uh, the star cruisers and all these things and uh, there was a motion control camera that operated along a track and it was connected to a computer that controlled its or memorized its action on paper tape 
which was the state of the art at the time. And there was a star field. And then they had a separate uh, room for the optical benches. And to get to the room, you had to go through an airlock. You'd step into this little, um, you'd open a door and step in and close the door behind you. And you were standing on a grill. And closing the door behind you would turn on a vacuum that would suck the dust off your, <laughs> the soles of your shoes. And then... It's like E.T. And then... Um, <laughs> You, that would end, and then you could proceed through the second door into the room where they had the um, the optical uh, printer uh, printers, where they would re-photograph the negative, which is how you did optical effects in those days. You would expose part of the film uh, and protect the rest of it with a mat, and then you'd rewind the film, and then the part that you had protected the part that was exposed you would protect that and then the part you had protected you would expose to the next bit and uh, develop it all at once and then these two separate piece, pieces of film were now combined the images were combined onto a single piece of film that's how they did all those effects Jeez. and that's why they had to um, track all the movements of the motion control camera sometimes some of these um, uh, shots had had dozens of elements in them. And they, and they really got excited by Return of the Jedi because there's one shot where there's like 50 and they're like, let's see how far we can push this. <laughs> you can see they'd done like 50 different TIE fighters. Yeah, they really... Yeah, it's extraordinarily uh, painstaking work. You don't have to suck the dust off your feet to open up Maya, for example. <laughs> yeah. So that's how technology <laughs> has, has changed some, right? I contend that, that the uh, computers have made the work easier but the job harder because the nature of the work now invites participation. And um, before, it was sort of an arcane, unknown kind of uh, mysterious. work. Mysterious. <laughs> mysterious work we were doing. Yeah. And now um, people don't watch dailies anymore. The dailies go up on, a, on pics or some site, and you get notes from the executives saying, you know, put that, put that cut up on pics, and we'll look at it over the weekend. And... Then you get a 343 feet and seven frames because you extend that shot a couple of frames and you know sort of takes all the fun out of the work. So it makes the j the work easier, but the job you know has suffered. And a lot of the old guys that I talk to, old guys like me, uh, I say the job stopped being fun, didn't it? It used to be fun. <laughs> it was it was it was enjoyable, and it's not so enjoyable anymore. And I hear this again and again that people just agree it's not as much fun as it used to be. Certainly, gone are the days where, and I because we, we just saw Apocalypse Now recently, and that that was edited for like a year, right, or longer. They, they kept saying like, "When is this?" Three gonna, years. Yeah, like no release date. Just when he's done editing it, mm -hmm. it's going to get released. The, that's a very different era. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in those days, they would look at a film finished and then decide when to release it. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Jason Blum is a, a person now who is trying to follow that old school method. Is uh -huh. we know when we would like to release a film, but we're not going to make a date yeah. because we want the film to be as good as it can. So right. loosely, we could, Halloween time can we get it done? Like, but they won't adhere to it. And I think that that, like you just said, that's a better way to make those movies. Is yeah. get to a point where it's good and then figure out what to do. I was wanting to ask you something about John Hughes, but Adam, we were talking about this right before you got here, the lightsaber thing. Yeah, well, speaking of special effects, the, the, I think one of the, uh, of the many, many great behind-the-scenes stories that even obsessive Star Wars fans don't know reading your book uh, and is revealed is uh, the 
the great, great old question: Why is Darth Vader's lightsaber red, and why is Luke's uh, or Obi Wan's blue? And the answer is Paul Hirsch. <laughs> well, to be fair, George came to me and says, I'm going to color the lightsabers. I was thinking of blue and red. What do you think? I said, well, yeah, if you do that, then, you know, you know I had majored in art history at Columbia, and I had learned that in the conventional Christian art iconography, blue represented the celestial and red represented the earthly. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to take good versus evil kind of situation, then I would put blue in Luke's hands and red in Darth Vader's, and that's what he did. Yeah, yeah. you're speaking George's language yeah, when you say you the, really uh, the, when you talk about those, <laughs> those levels of meaning, I think, right? <laughs> Celestial. Well, I think that part of the reason that Star Wars succeeded to the degree that it did was that it has a very strong moral underpinning. I don't think that you can have a huge success unless there's a strong moral uh, message in the movie, whether it's explicit or implicit. Uh, it has to be based on something that connects with people's sense of right and wrong. I think that's why it's so universally accepted all over the world. Yeah. Well, then let's talk about Blowout. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that film, yeah. and that may not have had uh, a good old Make America Feel Great uh, finale. How, what was the fight to make sure that the script from that film stayed intact? Oh, I should say, actually, John Travolta film, if you don't know it, about a... Yeah, Brian a, De Palma. Yeah, Brian De Palma, a sound guy who is listening for sounds in the woods to create for a movie uh, to, to call them for a film, and he hears, essentially, a potential murder. Well, Brian shoots stuff very specifically, mm-hmm. and he's uh, brilliant in that respect. He has a, a, a visual sense um, that's, you know... Very few people can match that. I heard recently that Coppola said, you know, of all the guys back then, Brian was the real genius. Hmm. Um, You know, Coppola made what people consider to be the greatest movie ever made. But um, so anyway, Blowout. So Blowout, you know, when I read Blowout, uh, I had problems with the script personally. And... Uh, I gave, I told Brian my concerns, and he was not receptive. And uh, I went ahead anyway, and um, I think I learned a lesson on that picture, which was that a director really deserves to have uh, in his editor a collaborator who is fully on board with it. And um, I had, because of my problems, I think I was critical in ways that. Um, you know, we we diverged a bit in the collaboration, and it caused strains in the relationship. And I sort of regret that I had taken it on in a, in a sense. Uh, but it was not, you know, it was not fatal, and we did work together again after that. But I did have concerns about the script, and then in cutting the film, we we went through a lot of uh, quite a bit of restructuring. Uh, in order to uh, help the picture. And ultimately, I think what Brian had set out to do was to make a film about a conspiracy, a, a political a, a conspiracy about a political assassination, and inadvertently wound up making a lone assassin movie. My takeaway from that yeah. chapter is those two things you just said. One is that there is something to the whole idea of, I want to work with this person, but you might be short on... You're not 
don't like the story or you don't like something else. And that is a responsibility you might take more serious. That's one of my takeaways. And then ultimately, I do really love that movie. And so whatever that dynamic was that didn't work or whatever, I still think the result is fantastic. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah I saw it for the first time yeah. within the last year. And that movie is amazing. I saw it really young. And I couldn't believe how it spoke to me as as being very young and seeing that. And I always talked about it to Paul, but Paul, you got to see this. Paul, you got to see this. And I made him. Eventually, watch just it. gave me a DVD and I watched it. And and Mike went to see. I guess you talk at the New Beverly about ten years this ago. Film. And so let's take a side tangent. How great is that theater? <laughs> in Los Angeles. New Beverly is like the greatest theater. There I is. saw Obsession yeah. there and uh, and uh, uh, Blowout. Were yeah. you there that night yeah. when he was there? Probably. Yeah. That's about 10 years ago. I was in Santa Monica, and I, dro- I drove like two hours in traffic like at 5 o'clock to get there for your talk. And, uh, you know, I, I, that you're the one that you talked about Phantom of the Paradise being one of your early movies and one that you liked. And I was like, I've never seen that. And so I bought it that, that night. How'd you like it? Oh, well, we talked about oh, that before you got here, too. Amazing. And, like, I wanted to buy a helmet and a T-shirt. Like, I love that. I couldn't believe how much that spoke to me in a comedic and serious dry way. I, I that movie's fantastic. Huge disaster when it opened. Yeah, probably. But they're still playing it's it. It's time. They're still playing it's it. It's time. Yeah, uh, it's. I mean, it's tremendously popular. I saw that also at the New Beverly, uh, with a fully packed crowd, fully engaged in that movie. That and they all loved it. And man, that really makes that movie. You realize just how genius every little piece of that movie is. And, and you told a story that. George and Marsha were there at a screening of that movie, yeah, and so George cool. was kind of looking at the ground, <laughs> and then she said, oh, this is Paul. He's the editor of the movie. And then you said, George, wait, you edited this movie? And it was like a little bell went off his head, and he just marked you for, like, I want that guy for something later. Phantom was picked up by 20th Century Fox. It was an independent production, and it was the largest sum ever paid for an independent production. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of excitement about it, and I was in New York. Brian was in L.A., and he said... There's a screening this weekend. You got to come out here. There's a lot of excitement. You don't want to miss this. And uh, I flew out and we screened the picture in the little theater on the Fox lot. Then afterward, they had a little reception uh, for the audience had come. And there were about 50 or 60 people. And Marsha uh, came up to me at the party. She said, uh, are, you, are you the editor? And I said, yes. Oh, she, and she grabbed me by the hand. She says, George wants to meet you. <laughs> So she pulled me through the crowd, and uh, I mean, she introduced herself first. And of course, she had cut graffiti, yeah. and, and um, Alice doesn't live, Alice doesn't live here anymore. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, she was, and taxi driver. No, she hadn't done taxi driver yet. That was the following year. But anyway, um, that's how it happened. She introduced me to George, and she said, "George, this is Paul Hirsch. He, he cut the film. He said, oh, great, nice to meet you." And that was it. You know? Yeah. And, and one of the things we love about all these movies too is the cross section of all these creators. So the, the 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 crew, you know, De Palma and Lucas and Coppola. The fact that all these people knew each other that blew my mind at one point. After I was a big movie fan and I, I started reading, I'm like, all these people knew each other. What was the energy with those guys? Uh, you know, just constantly being uh, creative and onto yeah, the next well, thing. And well, they fed off each other, and they you know each one was uh, coming up uh, an exciting new director coming up and they uh you know they're excited being in each other's presence and watching each other's movies and and sharing thoughts and um competing i guess you know and i used to say george and steven were like two guys playing a video game trying to run up the highest score you know <laughs> how, how many how many million how many million dollars can can your picture make you know were you ever uh, punched or shot by john millius <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's funny. I I met John at a uh, 
at a party. George used to have these Fourth of July parties at the ranch, even before there's anything was built there. He just had the property, and uh, I just read an interview with Milius, and I found him, I found myself talking to him, and we chatted for about ten minutes. And everything he said to me, I had read in the article. <laughs> so he was just sort of <laughs> he's just sort of delivering. His press release. He's got his, talking points. His, yeah, he had his <laughs> he had his talking points. Well branded, his personality from what I've, I gather. <laughs> John worked with a friend of mine, a composer named Basil Polidorus, yeah. who I was very very fond of, and who died at a very young age. He was Conan the Barbarian, sixty one, and uh, he was a great guy. Robocop's own, right? Robocop, yes, yeah. Humphrey yeah. October, and uh, Lonesome Dove. Oh, yeah. It's like six instruments or something, and it's beautiful, beautiful score. Yeah, very you talented. work with John Hughes, which is very, very different from the Lucas yeah. uh, Spielberg, like all that group of yeah. people. Another genius. Yeah, yeah. in its own way. Was. Like you were talking about working with the writer. You were actually working with, the again, the writer and the director the of the, the movie. And, and that movie is... It's one of those things where I adapted the push-in, and I know you comment on it at the beginning of the book, like how you would have a wide shot, and, you, and even my little Super 8 films, I did that all the time, and then reading in your book, you're like, I think it was Herbert Ross that said, what's with the push-in? The punch-in. The punch-in, the punch-in, yeah. yeah. yeah no, that wasn't Herbert. Where without changing that? your angle, yeah, you without you just do the Into a closer shot. It's a director I don't want to talk about. Oh, okay. All right. uh, but uh, like I started picking that up in, in Ferris Bueller because there's a lot of tripod shots in, the, in, in, in that movie. Uh, not a lot of moving things. And you... John once said, I don't really understand coverage. I think it has something to do with math. <laughs> <laughs> Which I guess was not his favorite subject in school. Yeah. In the, you know, back in when I started and coming into the business... The director was considered to be the key element in the creative package. And in those days, if a director had a uh, successful film, the studios would come to him and say, what do you want to do next? What, have you got a project you want to do? We want to we work with you. What have you got? You know? And it doesn't work that way anymore. Today, uh, at the studios, at least that I, as, as I understand it, I'm sort of edging out of the business now. Um, they have teams of what they call creatives, the creative executives, mm -hmm. the creatives, <laughs> and uh, I'm and a they, creative. And that's, they, not, that's not said with any disdain at all. <laughs> I, I, I'm not saying that with disdain. It's what, what they call themselves. Right. It's sort of self-parody. But anyway, um, they develop projects. You know, they have development projects. A studio in those. You know, when I worked with the studio, I worked with. 20th Century Fox when Joe Roth was the head and they would develop about a hundred projects every year and they would make maybe 20 or 24 of them something like that uh, they didn't make more because the um, marketing department couldn't handle more than two a month they just couldn't come up with campaigns for more than that and uh, that was the way it worked it was sort of that was the norm in the business so they made maybe, you know, a fifth to a quarter of the development projects, and most development projects never went anywhere. The thing about John Hughes was he would write these brilliant first drafts, and, and he'd never change them. And the studios got to understand that that was his modus operandi. And the result was that he would... The, the two films I did with him were the two longest first cuts I'd ever done, because... 
he had overwritten, and it was obvious from reading the script that the pa- you know too many pages, and he wouldn't rewrite them, and he wouldn't let anyone else rewrite them either, and he insisted on shooting them as he had written them, and they were brilliant. Uh, but then, of course, we'd start, you know, cutting on film, and that's not really the most efficient way to do it. So, on planes, trains, and automobiles, we shot for 85 days. And some days we'd have three hours of dailies. I'd come out of dailies, I'd say to the crew, we just watched more film than wow. the whole film can run. <laughs> and one day's dailies out of 85. So, is it uh, just a lot of takes, or is he just getting... He just he would come up with new material. Yeah. Um, I went down to the floor one day, and I said to the su- script supervisor, how are we doing? She said, not great. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, the master runs 14 minutes. I said, but the camera only holds 11. She says, we did a pickup. <laughs> On the master shot. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so an, an initial cut of that ran three hours, 45 minutes. Is yeah. that right? So anyway, we, so we sat down to go through it. And John had taken a two-week vacation at the end of principal photography of the studio was going nuts because anyway it's it, so I write about this in the book and um, I go into some detail about it but anyway we sat down he had been thinking about what could be cut out of the script obviously uh, and I mean out of the film so we had this three hour and 45 minute first cut so we went through it on the cam we said we go through alright let's d- dump this the, we're not going to do this forget this there was a subplot about Steve Martin's wife suspecting that he was having an affair, and she had scenes with her mother talking about the marriage, and we ditched that whole line, and we just, and, you know, there were other things we just threw out whole hog, you know, and just wholesale cuts. Wow. And in the first pass, we got down to two and a half hours. So we took out, from 3.45, we went to 2.30. We'd taken out an hour and 15 minutes. I said to John, you know, we just eliminated 28 days of shooting. Wow, <laughs> and he just shrugged. Because <laughs> that's it's damn Fincher, Fincher-esque, right? Didn't David Fincher do like yeah. thirty minutes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but his s- is all takes. You <laughs> said something too that he would actually just turn the camera on, and they would just keep rolling through takes. They'd never stop the camera to to do. So the whole roll would just roll out, and they would just keep doing takes. Yeah, yeah. Like he wouldn't stop. stop. John never said cut. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Run out, reload. You know, and then you. And and the difficulty, of course, is we were on film then. If you have a close-up of John Candy and uh, it gets to the end of the scene and John says, okay, pick it up from, you know, and they do it again, and then maybe a third time or a fourth time on a thousand-foot roll, there's no no visual clue to where the take ended and started again. So uh, finding line readings is really um, Hmm. difficult. That movie is funny. Yeah. It's funny. It's It's kind of funny. But it's got a lot of. It's interesting that how much that he must have rolled because there's a there's a couple of really good scenes where they're those two are relating. That when Steve Martin after the car burns up and and John Candy are in the hotel room, yeah. they're getting drunk and they're starting to be get really giggly and it's very genuine. And I've always thought that that seemed to be the result of shooting a lot and just get it, doing bits and that sort of thing. I don't know if that scene was extremely long at one point from improv or well, that was the 14 minute scene. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and it reads actually, that there's a naturalness to it. I didn't cut that one because, yeah. you know, at that point I was so overwhelmed. We had we had finished shooting in, on June 30th, and we were booked into thousands of theaters on November 9th. Mm. So we had to mix in October, and it was going to take 
three weeks or you know at least so we had to be locked by uh, the end of September basically and now we had eight weeks you know nine weeks between the end of June and Labor Day and we had a three hour and 45 minute film so uh, I had hired three I had promoted a couple of my assistants and hired a a fourth editor so that scene the the second motel scene was cut by somebody else and Mm. Um, and then it was cut down further when we got to getting the, p- the film down to size. And it's hard. This is one of my favorite comedies of all time. You, you mentioned it's two comedians at the top of their game. True. Mm-hmm. It's a joke and bit filled script that just moves from one comedic <laughs> scenar- scenario to another see, flawlessly. You know, just and it's hard to believe that there were bad preview screenings of it. Yeah, I was blindsided. I was. I went into that first preview thinking this is the funniest movie I've ever seen, uh, but it was two hours long. And the thing that you know, the danger of having a long first cut is that you cut and you cut and you cut and you think you're there, but you're not because you started so long. So, um, and there were things about the characters that we hadn't picked up that the audience had a problem with, and uh, we had nine previews in the month of September. <coughs> You know, um, and no, we had to be wow. locked. We had to be locked by, and this is on film. So we were turning a fi- picture around twice a week with a new temp mix, twice a week in order to solve these problems. And it wasn't until the fourth screen that we figured out that they, you know, they felt that Candy's character was using Martin's character and they disliked Candy for that. And then they got impatient with Martin for staying with him. And then the, the first screening, we had 20 people walk out, and we, I was blindsided by it. Sure. And I've never, re- I've never recovered, frankly. <laughs> I never go into a preview feeling confident ever again. Hmm. You just don't know. Well, it's tough to have a movie with an annoying character who's supposed to be lovable. You know, I mean, that's a that's a tightrope. <laughs> yeah, and he's supposed to be boring. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about you know, unlikable because he's boring. You know, how do you make a a boring character interesting? You know, it's funny. It's I think you're talking you about John Candy boring. And you made me talk about John Candy. Oh, oh, oh. But they're both problematic and that they could both be annoying for different reasons. And no, you I, still was, I was to, talking about Candy. Oh, you were talking about Candy. Okay. Because oh. Candy's supposed to be boring that he talks Steve's Because oh, okay. he's a salesman, right? Because Neil yeah. seems pretty boring, too, because he is just a, a stolid businessman who doesn't seem to enjoy anything. And he's a jerk too quickly in the yeah. movie, too, which I always thought was kind of an interesting risk. You know, he, he goes off on John Candy so early, which is very interesting dynamic. Which may have been in the edit. Maybe that was way later or whatever, too. You know? Yeah, that callback montage at the end helps a lot by making that movie. Oh, yeah. When yeah. he just goes back and he's replaying everything that John Candy said, which now has more weight to it because his well, that, wife's not alive anymore. And well, that was a discovery we made. It's, yeah. it, it, that is the ending to the movie. It really helps. It's a lot of hard. Yeah. No, that, that was the key to finishing the picture because the original, as written was they separate at the train station at the L in on you know the loop in Chicago and Steve gets on the suburban train says goodbye to Dell he goes out to the suburbs gets off and goes into the suburban train station and trips over Dell's trunk once again mm. and Dell is sitting there and he says what are you doing here he says uh, I got a lift from one of the truckers and he says yeah but what what are you what are you doing here why aren't you home you know and Candy says you know and Candy says well I can't go home. He says, why not? Why can't you go home, Dell? He says, I don't have a home. And then he tells the story about Marie, and she was sick for a long time, and then, you know, and, and he has this long monologue about 
how you know he he's alone and he latches on to people during the holidays and sometimes he goes to church and mm. and people started and <laughs> people started laughing and people started laughing like yeah. you just did. yeah I'm thinking so, about just how that would not work yeah and people started laughing and we thought oh my god you know and then and then he, the longer he went on the more people laughed and it was not a good laugh it was a bad laugh mm. and uh, we thought oh no this is not working so uh, we. Uh, we reconceived, you know, and then I forget, you know, how it happened. You know, you work with people, you, you, these ideas come up, you don't know where they come from. But what we did was we cut the whole scene. The suburban train station where that took place uh, had never been established, so, and nor had the tr station back in the city. So what we did was we put, we had shots of Steve on the train, and we did those flashbacks to moments in the film where Candy hinted at his being alone and homeless mm -hmm. and uh, then we cut to the train going back into the loop station by running the film backwards. We only had one shot of the train leaving. Oh, wow. So we, were, we, ran, <laughs> nice. we ran the film backward. That's great. And, uh, and then we had a shot of Steve getting off the station and we flopped that so it seemed to be so he seemed to be going in, in the proper direction and then at that point we cut into the suburban train station but playing it as if it were in Chicago and we cut out all the dialogue and he just looks at him he says yeah. come home you know come uh, with me wow so it it helped because we got rid of the scene that was not working and also it gave uh, Steve's character more depth because he was you know, empathetic and under, understanding enough to perceive yeah. Dell's situation yeah. without having to be told it. You know, and it gave Dell more dignity uh, that he wasn't throwing himself uh, at somebody. You know, at Steve's feet, and uh, it, it was better in so many different ways. Great, cut really to every time you go away, and you've got yourself every some John Hughes magic right there. Away. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, speaking of John Hughes magic, uh, I thought it was because John Hughes is always, you know, he's very specific about his soundtracks. Uh, Ferris Bueller is a pretty famous soundtrack. I thought one of the interesting things in the book, actually all over, was that you list a lot of the temp tracks from these movies. And obviously Star Wars has a famous score, but it was interesting to read all the different temp tracks that you had in there. Yeah. But also like that you would... Uh, uh, have temp tracks for, for Ferris Bueller's Day Off. There's such famous sequences, and I know they ultimately, a lot of them got changed because uh, John Hughes is very specific, but... Um, well, it's funny, when he's for You know, I had, I had made most of the choices, I don't remember how many, I, mean, I think most of them, maybe all of them, uh, in the music when I showed the picture to John uh, when he came back from Chicago. I was there for a, uh, a while, but then my son broke his leg and I had to come home to help out, and... Uh, and I finished the cut in L.A., and then John came back and looked at it, and he said he loved all the choices I made with the music. He just they thought they were great. And then about a month later, he was he hated them all. Yeah. You know, he... <laughs> he, uh, Yeah, he... Because the, uh, the, the one Beat City where they go downtown was Katrina and the Waves, which, of course, yeah. matches perfectly. That, that I, I can absolutely watch that sequence and hear that now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got to use it in the next film. I used it in Secret of My Success. Oh, yeah, you did. Yes, you did. Yeah. <laughs> the closing uh, credit sequence, who was doing that before that? Where you would still run the movie while the credits were going? Where just 
I know you were able to save a scene by putting the the Rooney on the bus. Yeah. Well, where was it? Who was doing that before? Because now it's it's marvel. It's a marvel thing, you know, to have. Well, then nobody runs a whole scene throughout the yeah, credits. You yeah. know, who was doing that? Was it? I don't know. I don't think yeah. so. Right? No. The the idea came because we had shot these improvs in the bathroom of Ferris talking to the camera. Yeah. You know, we had different versions where he would look in the camera and say, "Nick, is that you? Is that you, Nick?" You know, or you know, uh, and then we went with the one. It's over. Go home. Go yeah. home. So uh, John wanted to put this on the end of the roll, uh, the end credits, and I said, John, no one's going to be in the theater by the time this comes up. You know, he said, Yeah, but I want to go with it anyway. <laughs> so then I thought to myself, we have this great scene of Rooney on the bus. We could run that during the credits, and people <laughs> would stay to watch that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yes, and that way they'll. They'll see the uh, the tag at the end. So um, it was a really funny scene, but in the context for which it was written, it just killed the pace of the movie. Yeah. There's, there's all this stuff going on that we couldn't stop for a three-minute scene about... Um, Warm gummy bears. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, 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 that's iconic to me, of mm. seeing that. And I just assumed, oh, lots of movies did that before because I didn't know. Well, I, I, realized, I don't think so. Airplane did a post-credits sequence. They cut one last time to the guy in Robert Hayes' oh, cab. That's right. I always that's thought right. that was so funny. <laughs> that's right. But there was nothing, no scene to keep you there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, through. So that was that was what was kind of revolutionary about Ferris. Well, it was, it was just, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention I, kind I, of I, thing. Can you talk about one more film? Yeah. Uh, because Joel Schumacher gets uh, a lot of grief for his Batman movies. But he, make no mistake, he has some masterpieces in He's him. He's got lots. Uh, one, I think, is Cousins, an unabashedly romantic movie that I am okay. absolutely in All love right. with. Based on a French picture. Yeah, Cousin Cuisine. Cousin Cuisine. Uh, a Time to Kill is no slouch, but uh, you worked on Falling Down, which I think is an exceptional movie. Yeah, I like Falling Schumacher Down. catalog. Um, I've, I was defense once for Halloween. It's an easy costume. You <laughs> crack your glasses, carry a bat. And a, I didn't know that. And a, yeah, yeah. I would do it again because it's low maintenance. <laughs> but, you know, bat and a briefcase and a tie and the crack yeah. glasses, you're off, off you get. And, of course, short, the name tag. Short sleeve white shirt. It's exactly. a great image. Yeah. But uh, you know, the guy, there's a scene where he's, he's on Wilshire Boulevard uh, in Hollywood. I think it's Hollywood. And he sees a guy being arrested. Uh, uh, a, a black guy is being arrested. He's he's standing in front of a bank. He says, "I am not economically viable." They say, "I'm oh. not economically viable," and um, he gets arrested by the cops and taken away. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but they're dressed exactly alike. Oh wow! Oh. An excuse and, to watch that again. And uh, Michael watches him being taken away, and the guy leans out of the police car. He says, "Don't forget me." Oh, wow. oh, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, but I forgot that they were dresses. Bondi Curtis Hall. Bondi no, Curtis he's Hall, great. yeah. He's great. Yeah, and uh, they're, they're just the same. Now, this sort of uh, type of movie was, uh, I don't want to say it was big back then, but, you know, we'd come off of um, Do the Right Thing, and uh, now the L.A. riots actually happened, and you launch into Falling Down, if you don't know, which is about a man who is sitting in his car, dealing with a fly that eventually he cannot kill, and he just goes nuts. He goes out in the street and gets into uh, contentious he, he situations throughout he, Los Angeles. He flips out in his car, stuck yeah. in traffic, and does, oh, the most, traffic jam, yeah. does the most antisocial thing you can do in L.A., which is he gets up out of his car and leaves it on the freeway <laughs> and walks off the freeway. I mean, 
You can't do anything more antisocial than that. No, but we just had the L.A. riots. So what was it like well, making no, a film? The, in the, the, in the, the riots movie? happened while we were shooting. Okay. Oh, well, yeah. So what was? Uh, well, we had to stop shooting. There? You know, they were told to stop shooting for a day or two, or, and uh, and then afterwards, uh, somebody said, you know, Joel, you should shoot because everything was shot on location. Um, almost everything was shot on location, and definitely feels like it. It's got a yeah. real fe- realistic feel. feel oh, like yeah, that's, you can touch everything in that movie. You yeah. can feel the heat in, yes. in that L.A. And uh, somebody suggested to Joel that he shoot with using some of the burned out uh, buildings in the background. He said, I would never do that. I would never, I would never profit from somebody else's misery. Wow. Yeah. Okay, at least no one thought those were the riots happening when Michael Douglas was yelling at somebody <laughs> in the street. You know, seeing the shooting, oh, going yeah. looking for cameras, making sure, okay, this isn't just a guy going nuts. This is a movie actually being filmed. Um, but the the movie itself, Schumacher, just the opposite of Hughes, right? Shoots very little film, yeah. very few takes. Yeah, amazing. The the least amount of footage I've, I'd ever experienced. I hmm. mean, it was just Efficient. yeah, re- remarkable and. I asked him, why do you shoot so little? Don't you worry about it? What if the negative gets scratched? And he just sort of shrugged. He said, the reason I shoot so little is because dailies are so boring. Yeah. <laughs> he, was a, he was a director of photography for years before that, set right? Set designer. No, no, no. Set designer? Was costume designer. Costume, costume designer. He started out dressing, uh, um, you know, uh, mannequins in Henry Bendel's window as, uh, in, in New York. Yeah. And then he wrote the script for The Wiz... So and then he worked his way into into writing and then directing. But the studio thought Michael Douglas's character went too far when he shot. Uh, so uh, it was a yeah. a gang member, right? Yeah. And then he stole their guns. Yeah. And they wanted to take it to just he steals the guns. They didn't want him to shoot him. But right. I don't get that because he had just come off of Basic Instinct, Fatal Attraction. His next movie is going to be Disclosure. This he played volatile characters mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. Interestingly, when uh, Joel sent Michael the script. He was offering him the part that eventually went to Duval. And Michael said, no, I want to play defense. So hmm. that casting complicated things for the audience, in a sense, because, and for the studio, because they thought, well, Michael Douglas is the star. We can't have the star be the bad guy, you know? And um, in the sequence you're talking about, he'd been sort of... Uh, accosted by a, a gang and he chased them off uh, using the baseball bat that he'd stolen from the Korean store owner that he'd you know terrified and uh, then he takes takes a, sw- a switchblade or a gravity knife or whatever from one of those guys and then they come looking for him and they shoot at him in a drive-by uh, shooting attempt and they miss him and they crash their car the stunt guys couldn't get the car to crash, so Joel gave up on the whole idea of shooting the crash, so he just, you just hear the crash, and then he staged the consequence of the crash because he couldn't get, he said, you know, he was frustrated because he said, on TV, you see these things all the time, these guys <laughs> couldn't, they couldn't get it together, so. I'm thinking stunt guys who could, couldn't crash a car? It's like, yeah. I don't yeah, know. They live for that I stuff. I wasn't there, I don't know what the problem was, <laughs> but anyway, he decided it would happen off screen, and. <laughs> So we, Michael turns the corner and he finds the car up on its side or upside down, I forget, and, and uh, he reaches in and he takes a, a bag of guns that they'd had in the car and uh, shoots a guy in the leg and walks off. And the studio said, no, you can't have Michael Douglas shooting somebody 
spontaneously just like that, you know, without provocation. And say, well, he was shot at, yeah, but you can't have him shoot the guy in the leg. So we screened it without that. Uh, we had screened it once with him shooting it and once without shooting him. And the scores, the overall scores are basically the same. But I looked at the analysis of the cards and I saw that in the version where he shot the guy, uh, where, he, where he did not shoot the guy in the leg, uh, people felt the, the ending was more predictable. Hmm. And uh, I pointed this out to Joel and he agreed and, and they talked, uh, talked the studio back into putting that back because when he shot the guy in the leg it made him really uh, you know unpredictable and when you get to the end in the showdown with Duval had he not shot the guy in the leg they would have thought oh well, he's not going to shoot this guy either oh. you know he's not going to shoot Duval either but the fact that he had done it earlier made it but you know overall the scores were exactly the same but it was just that aspect of it was I thought more interesting I love uh, Michael Douglas. He could have romancing his the stone his way through <laughs> yeah. his career as a hero uh -huh. lead, but he yeah. just took on these edgy parts, and I just uh, I'm a big fan. Always have been. Um, well, listen, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, Ray, Steel Magnolias. Th there's tons of movies Footloose. that they Footloose, Footloose that you. Th did, I, I want to bring up Footloose for just one last Ray thing, because with Footloose. We talk about how a frame can be important. Like you've often, you have put many stories here where you're fighting and arguing for one to eight to ten frames, mm -hmm. and lo and behold, Footloose comes out on VHS, and the whole thing is out of sync because oh of like God. eight frames or something oh like that. God. And it went out to like twenty five frames, thousands and thousands of copies went out horrible. to the world. Horrible. And there's your work. It was uh. horrible. I've wondered how many jobs I lost cutting musicals, but people putting in the VHS of Footloose and thinking this guy doesn't know how to cut the music. This guy's this guy's hopeless. But it was in the theater. It was correct. It's the VHS. Yeah, yeah. and it's only the, the first yeah. portion of the movie that's out of sync. First five minutes. And first I five. I confronted the guy who did the transfer, and I said, and he put a five frame freeze frame at the end of the sequence. Because he I, knew. And I said, well, what is that? And he says, well, when we got to the dialogue, we could see it was out of sync. So we backed up and added the fire. I said, why didn't you get back up to the head of the reel? It was, <laughs> it was just two, two and a half minutes. I, just, I was just frustrated. And I said to Paul Hager, who was at a post at Paramount at the time, can't we do anything? He says, no, it's already gone out. But to this day, though, the Laserdisc, was it also out of sync? No, 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 it's been fixed. All right. <laughs> it's been fixed th thanks to uh, Fred Chandler. Who uh, anyway? That whole yeah. that whole world is gone. If you don't know the opening of Footloose, it's basically feet dancing to a song. So the sync is crucial. It is <laughs> like that's all and it is. And the feet yeah. movements, yeah. But um, so we won't talk too much about these other movies. But I do want to ask one question because we love Tom Cruise. Yeah. We're movie guys, unabashedly. Yeah. Keanu Reeves, yeah. Tom Cruise. We love him. Yeah. Um, d but you know, you hear I love about him too. You hear about him meddling. In movies he's involved in. Well, he's a producer uh, now, so it's not meddling. It's his job. <laughs> That's right. Good, because I want to always get Tom Cruise's back wherever I can. He's the last great movie star, and everybody has a Tom Cruise story. The other thing about Tom is that he has worked with every major director you can name. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Worked with Kubrick, Scorsese, Coppola, Spielberg, the Palma, you know... Ron Howard. Ron Howard. I mean, you just go down the list of important uh, directors. 
he's worked with them he's, all. He said in interviews that everybody wants him. Yeah, and he's he, the hardest working person I've ever known. And they, you know, he's just extraordinary. Now he said in interviews that his very first, even from his very first movies, all he did was hang around the directors because he just wanted to know what those people did. That's always been his obsession. Any other questions about movies before we get to you know, my final question? Yeah, the one thing I was good, I, maybe this is too obscure, but I, I was like, how did you know you could do this? How did you know you could do this? <laughs> I'll back up that question because, yeah, you did mention that you studied art history at Columbia University. Uh, yeah. So how does that translate? Well, I go into this in detail in the book. Oh, okay. I, I don't want to ruin it. But um, I didn't know I could do it, but I was attracted to the tools. It was the first thing I... I saw Moviola for the first time. Um, after I graduated from Columbia, I applied to Columbia Architecture School, and I was accepted, and I started there. And during that time, I visited a friend who was cutting a, a, a small film in an apartment near the campus, and I saw this Moviola for the first time. This is in the fall of 1966. The Betamax, which was the first uh, consumer videotape machine, came out in 1975. So in 1966, the only way you could see a moving image was either at the movies, in the movie theater, or on television, which was live. And, uh, or they, whatever, whatever they were showing, you could only watch it on TV, and there was no way to record the image. There's no way to pause the image. There's no way to rewind the image. There's no way to fast forward the stuff that was not in people's consciousness. It was just not... Uh, hadn't been done yet so here was this machine where you could thread it up with film now when I was about 10 years old a friend of our family gave us a projector and we had another friend of the family who worked for 20th Century Fox and he would borrow prints of Fox pictures over the weekend and we would project them at home and I was the projectionist Mm -hmm. And I would, you know, we showed Call Me Madam and There's No Business Like Show Business and Champion and I forget the other pictures. But, at, you know, at 10 years old, I was threading up the projector and making sure the loops were right and putting the film onto the take up. And sort of it's odd to think that I started doing at 10 what became my life's work. But mm -hmm. um, anyway, when I saw this movieola where you could stop on a frame and look at each of the little photographs that make up a movie and go back or forward and go slowly or fast, I thought, I want to do that. I don't know what it is, but I, that's so cool. <laughs> I just want to... And so then I, and I saw rewinds and reels and splicers and, and uh, synchronizers, and I thought, uh, I want to do this. I, wanna. I didn't know I'd be good at it. I, uh, I had no idea what it was. I just, want, I just knew I, I was attracted to it. Is the movieola what's on the cover of your book? Yes, yes, I'm sitting at a moviola. Adam, you got one last question? Because I got the final one. Um, did I have a question I brought up? No, I, I think we're... I think it's good. Oh, actually, one thing I just did think was funny, because I, I did watch Carrie after reading the part of Carrie in your book, yeah. and just it never would have occurred to me, but it's just a very funny aspect of things, the fact that your, your opening title credit in that movie comes with a, a, a giant nude scene. And I just I don't know if... Uh, that's just a... For a serious movie, that's just a very funny thing for a, a big-time credit to be in this nude locker scene edited by Paul Hirsch. <laughs> <laughs> there was a bit in The 40-Year-Old Virgin where uh, they're, they're going through old movies looking for nude scenes. 
and um, I got a call from Judd Apatow's office. <laughs> Can we use your credit uh, in our film? So I said, sure, you know. So they used the credit. It was part of this gag that, you know, yeah. uh, I guess you're all familiar with the gag. Anyway, um, I got calls from people saying, did you cut some porn film in the 70s? <laughs> <laughs> and, no, that was Carrie. That was... <laughs> Well, I'll ask you what we ask every guest who comes on the show. Okay. What is your favorite movie of all time? And there's... There's no wrong no answer. No wrong answer. Bart would tell you otherwise. One of our co-hosts here <laughs> would say there. Uh, well, you know, it's funny because sometimes you see a movie and then you see it again many years later and you think, why did I love that movie? So this is a guarded, a guarded question, but I would say... Oh gosh, I can't. I can't answer with a single one. I just say it's people cheat all the time too. Just for the record, they yeah. name five. They name what their favorite is right now. Yeah. So yeah, mine shifts. You, you can put yeah Today's all sorts of caveats on it. Well, Citizen Kane. It's film school, right? I guess. Yeah. When did you start appreciating the as an editor? Did that that movie change for you over the years as you watched it? Once you became an editor, I don't watch movies over and over again. Oh, okay. Um, I feel like I have limited time and why should I watch something that I've already seen? Although occasionally I'll see something more than once, but, um, I saw Citizen Kane when I was a student in Paris before enrolling in uh, architecture school that fall. And it had a profound effect on me and I guess really changed the course of my life because I gave up architecture to take up film. Hmm. Uh, it was part of a series of Wells films that I saw in Paris, and I knew nothing about any of them. And uh, it's the best way to see a movie is not to know anything about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw Citizen Kane on Monday, Magnificent Amazons on Tuesday, <laughs> A Lady from Shanghai on Wednesday, and Touch of Evil on Thursday. And Friday night he was showing Macbeth or Othello, I forget which one, and you couldn't get. In, he was coming and making a public appearance. You couldn't get near the place. So those four films, uh, I didn't understand anything about film, didn't know anything about it, but they had a profound effect on me because they were so so brilliant, you know. Side note, normally we ask everybody their favorite movie, but I'll ask you, what do you think is the best editing you've ever seen in a film? Now, it's tough to tell. We always make the, the case sometimes, yeah. unless you've seen all the footage, <laughs> it's tough to know what what the best editing is. But what what films what film have you seen where you just admired the choices or the pace or or whatever other editorial choices you saw? There's so many talented people working these days. I'd have to say Citizen Kane because yeah. yeah. you you judge a, you judge the editing by the quality of the picture. You can't know, you know. I my wife says to me, "How do you know if a film is well cut?" And I said, "Well." You know, sometimes my biggest contribution to a picture is taking a scene out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're not going to be able to tell by looking at the film that right. that taking that scene right. out was was the key to making it work. Yeah, but key. you can you have to judge the the finished film and assume that it's that way because the editing was brilliant. All right, I keep a little mystery. I want to point out something, Paul, that I think this is. Please do. Funny that I asked him about how he knew about getting into this. And for me, the whole idea that 
I'm so jealous of this. I wanted this so bad as a kid is to that, be able to watch Star Wars. My this own. is the first time in my life that you could ever take oh. a movie and move and count frames and do anything. Amazing. It was this stuff. Yeah. And, it's and a, it made me Star Wars Super 8. To, to Star Wars Super 8. Yeah, the Super 8 film that you could get at the store. And being able Now, what's the version on there? Um, this can't is, be this the whole this, movie. No, no they cut them the way, way down. Uh, seven minutes silent with lower... Th- now, there's a few of these. But the idea that for home viewing, you could study things. And I could take and look at... The, count the frames and stuff was why I became very fascinated. Like, you had a the, the movieola where you could do that. I became really fascinated, and this is because of this movie, that I was able to do that same thing on a very low-end scale. You know, now you say that, it makes me realize that I'm probably mistaken, that there were ways you could do that. I mean, that people who were into home movies had little viewers with a crank. They could crank, yeah. and, and so they could see film, uh, but... That was the only way. I had the one minute or less, 30-second reel yeah. of Star Wars, which cut Star Wars down to, I don't know, what do you think that was? It's less than two minutes. Two minutes. Uh, and and it's it's an amazing encapsulation. It's its own editing feat. But the, the one thing, I, I was lucky enough to do a video for John Williams' show at the Hollywood Bowl, and I used the exact, because you have to cut Star Wars down to match the piece or whatever, <laughs> and I loved at the moment where I took my play school Star Wars in the exact edit, which is the, the X-Wing coming at... The camera, and then they cut to the Death Star blowing up. That's how they got from the whole Death Star sequence. They just had one shot of the of the X-wing coming right at the camera, uh, which is earlier in the fight, and then an explosion of the Death Star. And I use that exact solution in a montage I did for the Hubble. <laughs> Thank you, Play School. But, but that's all you had. <laughs> yeah. we, we say that all the time. That's oh, yeah. all you had. That's back all you then. had. And you watch it over and over and over and over. You had the storybook, and you had the uh, Super Eight, and you had the you know, you, and the record. And the, and record, the record oh, was a big deal. The record yeah. was a big deal. Yeah. The thirty-three and third record was the best because that covered real, that had real all sounds. real sounds. Yeah, actually, there's a cue from the movie that's not on the record, and um, it's not on the record because it was a temp track that I put into the film when they when the Millennium Falcon's been captured and is on the Death Star and the stormtroopers are searching the ship and they walk by and a hatch pops open Mm -hmm. and they've been hiding under the floor and there's a dialogue scene and um, at that moment I cut in um, a cue from Psycho because I'd worked with Bernard Herrmann on two films and he had huh? Is that the I can't sing it. It's um, that's the one that's on the album. Me fa sol, but it's an octave <laughs> different. Anyway, or sol fa mi, but this the fa is an octave up, so it goes sol fa mi. I, I can't sing uh, it, but it's very famous, distinctive three-note signature. And John quoted it when he wrote the score, and that's yeah. on the record. It's not on the record. It's not on the record, but it's in the film. It's in the film. Yeah. Okay. That's from the temp he, track from Psycho. Yeah, he recognized it, and he was friends with Herman, and he included it as an homage. Wow! So, um, it's there. Thank you. But not on, know. but not on the LP. Yeah. At least it wasn't the last time I listened to it, which is many, many, many years ago. <laughs> well, one, one last thing since you brought up Bernard Herman, there's a famous story. For, I just uh, watched the De Palma documentary as well uh-huh. about the about the. And I'm forgetting what movie it is where they had the you had the whole Bernard Herman temp track for one of the movies. Yeah. And then brought Bernard Herman in about scoring the movie. Yeah, sisters. 
Sister, was it Sisters? Yes. And then Bernard Herrmann's like, I can't even watch this hearing my own music. I thought that was a... He didn't say it like that. He's... Turn it off! <laughs> Turn it off! We, we were terrified. Wow. He, that's the way he communicated. Oh, temp tracked his music, and we're asking him to put music. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Was, he wanted to see the film silent. Yeah. He didn't want any... And, uh... Wow. <laughs> I was 26 years old. <laughs> and here's Bernard Herman Screaming at you. Screaming at me. <laughs> Well, the stories are endless. We could one last question you until yes. like you know seven. Yeah, or eight yeah. Hours read the book. Now. Read the but book. We're going to just say go read the book. It so is called uh, "A Long Time Ago in a Cutting Room Far Away." Far, now, far away. You're, far, far away. Sorry, wherever you're buying books, probably Amazon. Also, Barnes and Noble. So it could be Barnes and Noble this morning, and it's on the Chicago Review Press website as well. And you're getting a lot of nice comments from a lot of directors. I've been seeing you post that on your Facebook. Uh, I did. Yeah, I, I, I did. And uh, if you want more of our nonsense, we're at themovieguys.net. Uh, at themovieguys everywhere. There is social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, all that. Um, and uh, you'll find links, reviews, articles, and more. Thank you so much, Paul. You are welcome. Thank you.